Meg Vins here. Welcome to the Chattering Hour, and we are delighted to have our special guest with us this week. Stephen C. Miller is best known for his high-energy action thrillers, but like so many great directors, his launching pad was horror. In his case, a film called Automaton Transfusion. Then, in 2012, he made Silent Night, which was loosely based on the 1984 cult classic Silent Night Deadly Night. Up next on the Chattering Hour, Stephen C. Miller. And we're back with our special guest, Stephen C. Miller. Miller's 2012 campy horror Christmas classic, Silent Night, starred Hollywood legend and genre star Malcolm McDowell and actress Jamie King. We talk about filming Silent Night, his action and thriller stuff, and what he did when he ended up with a whole load more zombies than he was expecting. Stephen, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Cool. Um, so I'd like to take you back to the very beginning, really. Sure. Um, you were brought up in, Deco- uh, how do I pronounce this? Decatur. Decatur, Decatur in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was born there. Oh, okay. So what was like, you know, what was life like as a kid? You know, as a kid, it was pretty crazy because my dad, when I was growing run up my early years, my dad was a Baptist preacher, uh, which was bonkers growing up uh, because it was pretty much rules were set out very early on. That was like, no, this, no, that can't do this. Can't do that. You got to be dressed this way. There was a lot of really strict rules in place in my youth, uh, very young. In fact, um, all the way up until about seventh grade uh, was really dealing with traveling with my dad as he bounced from one church to another church. Uh, And so we were in Georgia. Then we went to Florida. Then we went to Tennessee uh, then we went back to Florida and we pretty much landed in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and that's where I spent the rest of my, really the bulk of my, my youth was in Jacksonville, Florida. But uh, yeah, it, it was very interesting to say the least to start there with my dad, uh, doing that. Uh, and then, you know, interestingly enough, he, he left church and became a funeral home director. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a very big shift, uh, but not really. Um, you know, uh, my dad's yeah. attitude, my dad's uh, demeanor, uh, especially with my mom and everything. And then, uh, you know, it was just a big shift once he left church and, and got into uh, death, I guess. Uh, and, and, and that was really how, you know, my sort of uh, infatuation with, with horror stuff began, really. Ah, okay. So what sort of age were you when that happened? I, that, I was 11 uh, when that happened. Uh, and so I was just sort of starting to figure, you know, I sort of transitioned from watching like, I guess, like the Goonies and, and uh, uh, you know, all of the, you know, Spielberg and Lucas stuff and was starting to venture out and, uh, you know, went, went, Blockbuster was a big deal. So always kind of roaming around in Blockbuster or mom and pop shops, which was was one right next to our house. Uh, it's just kind of roaming around in there at, at that age, even though I wasn't really supposed to be doing it. I had older friends that were sort of saying, hey, you got to check out this. And it was box art. And, you know, it was just, what was the most interesting for me to find? Right, 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 right. So, I know you started making your own films very young. What sort of age when you started making your own films? 
Yeah, it was really close to once we once we got back and once we moved to Jacksonville, my dad kind of transitioned was, you know, he he picked up a camera that he was using sort of for home video stuff. And uh, I had uh, three brothers and a sister and they were all younger than me. But interestingly enough, each one of my brothers, we were all uh, 13 months apart from each other. So it was me, 13 months, 13 months, my next brother, 13 months. So it was like, you know, we basically had a team, you know. Right. Um, and so once I got a hold of that camera and realized I could somewhat do what I was watching, uh, it, it kind of sparked. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of decided this is something that I love doing. And my brothers were all game to to be involved in that. So that made it even more fun because, you know, it was just I was just able to film them doing really zany and crazy things. We were really into wrestling. And so, you know, it was like throwing them off things or down things or, you know, we were pulling mattresses off of our beds into the yard and trying to jump off the roof. It was just, you know, madness for for four boys, you know. Uh, and so my mom probably had a heart attack several times. Uh, but, yeah, that's really where it began was just that camera. Uh, and my dad allowing me to use it, which was kind of crazy because it was, you know, it wasn't something that I don't think he didn't really understand it. And I didn't really understand it. But him just saying something that expensive at that time in the early 90s, you know, was like, you know, you don't let a kid run around with it. But, you know, lucky for me, my dad just kind of was like, yeah, I don't know what to do with it. So sure. it, you do you do something. And, and this was a camcorder. So this was on tape. This is on tape. Yeah. So this, so this was one of the ones that was on your shoulder and it was on tape. And so how I learned really early on and really, it's really where I learned a lot of my editing was I would press record film, stop it. and know right where I left off and then change the camera angle record. Even if it was in the middle of them talking, I would stop it and then say, stop talking. And then we'd try to pick it up right there. And you pick up right where you left off talking. So the editing was happening button push by button push. So I was moving the camera as an edit. And so, because I didn't have a computer, so editing was impossible. Uh, so I was editing it via the record button. Wow. Wow. Do you still have some of the tapes? <laughs> we do still have some of the tapes. There are insane. My brother likes to pull them up whenever we do holiday things. Uh, he likes to pull the really zany ones up. Uh, yeah, they, they're crazy. <laughs> and, was it, <laughs> and was it always you behind the camera? Yeah, it was. I, I never really had an infatuation with in front of the camera. I mean, I did do a few things because I was just trying to understand placement. And if I was by myself, I would set the camera up and understand if I'm looking this way and then I set the camera up, how else do I need to look, you know, and, and trying to understand eye lines very early on uh, and trying to understand how when a when a camera is set up, does that mean that I need to be on the right or the left side versus the right or the left side when the camera's somewhere else? So, you know, I did a lot of that and you can see a lot of, there's some tapes of that of me just kind of looking into the camera and then it's a cut and then I'm looking away from the camera, you know, just really weird, odd things of me trying to emulate. There's even some, some video of me looking at it with, uh, I think it was Star Wars in the background and you can have it, it's paused and I'm sort of trying to line myself up with how it's paused on Luke and how he's looking and how does that framing work to this framing. Uh, and so I, you know, I was doing a lot of just sort of, I guess, homework uh, right. and, and, you know, early film school work uh, to try to understand what these shots were uh, and how they worked. Right, right. Because you went to Full Sail University to study film? Yes, I did. And what was what was that experience like? I had a blast. I, you know, the first time I actually had to go to Full Sail twice. The first time I went, I uh, couldn't have halfway through. I couldn't afford it, <clears throat> and so I had to drop out uh, and go work. Um, and that it took me about a year and a half to finish working to to be able to save up to get back to school. 
Um, but while I was doing that, I was constantly doing music videos. Uh, I was doing a lot of skate videos. I was huge into the skate scene. Uh, so I, I was a lot of traveling in my, in a, right out of high school, 18 to 21. I was traveling all over the place doing skate videos uh, for a lot of the local skating guys. And, and then that's where you sort of hook up with bands. And then I was doing a ton of music videos and really just sort of honing my my shooting style and craft of shooting. And again, like and that was around the first time I was able to buy a laptop. Uh, so that's when I was figuring out the editing process. Uh, and then and that's when I sort of was able to get back into full sale. Uh, and I chose full sale for a very distinct reason of gear. I, I didn't go for the film theory because I'll be honest, I felt like I'd watched enough movies uh, and watched enough behind the scenes movies because that's really what I watch. I would pop in the Blu-ray or DVD at that time in VHS and watch all behind the scenes uh, and really just listen to the filmmakers uh, commentary, whatnot. And so when it came to film school, my decision wasn't based on learning film theory. My, my film school decision was based on gear. Right. Right. And what was the, what was the the course? Funny enough, I was talking to Darren Basman, who also yeah. went to full sale as well. And he was describing yeah. how it was just very intense six days a week. Was that your experience as well? 100%. It's a 24 hours a day school. So my experience was probably very similar. Darren graduated a few years before me. Um, and so my experience with Darren or with Full Sail was very similar to Darren in the fact that it I would have class at one in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, and then I have a class at three in the morning. You know, and, and that's they called it real world education because they felt like, hey, film sets are never, you know, nine to five. Uh, film sets are at all hours of the day and you have to adapt to being able to move and, you know, maneuver in all hours of the day, which I think is very smart because we all know that's how it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is exactly how it was. It was six days a week. You were going to class, you would have your, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, workshop class in the, in the real early in the morning. Uh, so yeah, it, it was a lot of fun, um, intense, but you know, what I found was when I visited there to go there was that the gear was so amazing, um, that, Everything that they had as far as dolly, crane, you know, editing equipment, cameras, lenses, they had everything that I had ever seen being shot uh, when I would look at behind the scenes movies, you know, like that were they had it all. They had the 35 millimeter cameras, they had the 16 millimeter cameras. They had all of that. And I and I could literally see the Aerie or the Panavision on their labels and go, oh, that's what Spielberg was using when he shot E.T. I could see that. And so that was really what drew me to um, to the school because it had the same equipment that I grew up looking at as what they were filming with. Right, right. And then fairly shortly after graduation, you moved to LA and made automaton transfusion. Is that right? Yeah. Crazy enough, it was sort of like a all-in-one kind of deal. I was in film school. I met my friend, Will Clevenger and Mark Thalman in film school, and uh, we all decided, hey, we should make a movie, but we were graduating. And so we were trying to figure out where we were going to go. And I drove out to LA to meet my friend, Will, who was already out there. And, uh, you know, we were kind of working on really low budget movie sets and kind of seeing what these things for asylum, uh, films. Uh, and we were kind of seeing what they were doing and how they were working. We felt like, man, we could do this. Uh, we just need to figure out how to do it. And so, uh, I called full sale and I said, look, I, I want to make a movie and I just graduated. Uh, I don't have the means to do it. Can you help? And to their credit, uh, they said, look, we have a nine day window um, coming up. It's the July 4th window, nine days, students will be gone. Um, you have nine days, you can use all of our camera equipment, all of our gear, but you have nine days. And that's, that's all we can really do for you. Uh, and that was in, I believe it was a month and a half from the time I got that phone call. 
And so I looked at my friend, Will, we were in LA and I said, dude, we need to, we need to bounce. Uh, we need to try to go. We have nine days and we have a month and a half to figure out how to make a movie in nine days. So then we called my friend, Mark Thalman, who was in Ohio at the time. And he said, uh, all right, let's figure it out. Uh, and then we all three flew back to Florida in Orlando. Uh, and we started gathering up the money. My friend, uh, Mark Thalman's parents believed in us enough to put in some money for the movie, uh, which at the time I think was like $6,000. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, we literally wrote the movie on the floor in Orlando. Um, when we got back there, we wrote the movie, we casted the movie and we set sail to shoot the movie within that month and a half. Um, and we shot it all in downtown Orlando. It was insane nine days of, you know, a lot of people coming together because what I did was I went to the school and I went to every class in the school and, uh, I asked for help. I just, I got up in front of the, every class that was there, uh, at least the later, the later month kids that knew what they were doing and just said, Hey, look, I'm going to make a movie. Uh, I need people that know how to grip. I need no people that know how to carry cable. I need, we're all going to be students out here doing this. We're using the school's equipment and, and cables and stuff. So there was literally no one on the set that was under the age of 20, that was over the age of 23. Uh, it was just all film school kids trying to get it done. Um, so it, it was really insane to see, you know, it's like two or 300 people come out and help me uh, make this movie, you know, that they didn't have any reason to believe in or any reason to really want to do it other than my excitement and saying, Hey, I know I can do something with this. Uh, I promise uh, it'll be cool. And it'll be a fun experience. And uh, you know, it really did. It turned out to be a lot of fun. Right. And so, and it's a, it's a zombie movie. Yeah. It's well, a zombie film. Yeah. It's a zombie film. So was that because that was just what you all loved in terms, you know, you, you all love horror films and this was the natural progression or how did they? Yeah, there was, there's two answers to that. The first one is yes. I was a huge fan of Evil Dead. Evil Dead 2 had a big impact on me uh, when I was 11 and 12. That was one of the first horror films that I, I ever watched. Um, and then it sort of moved into like, then I was obsessed with, you know, The Living Dead and then like trying to figure out all these other zombie dead alive. I was just really kind of engulfing myself into that culture. And, it, and of course, because my dad had was doing funeral home things. You know, I was even more engulfed in it because I was like, well, you know, we can use the funeral home to shoot this with my brothers. So there, there was a lot of that growing up. So it was a natural instinct for me to, to want to figure out how to make a zombie film. And, and then the second part of that is, is that when I looked at some of my favorite filmmakers and, and where they were in their career, they all started in horror. Uh, and even the guys like Sam Raimi who were making Spider-Man, you know, they started in horror. And so to me, it felt like the best way for me to get into the industry and to sort of break in uh, was going to be something that was that I could sort of have free reign over, or it wasn't like, no, this is the set rules, like a, a drama or a, a comedy, or or these are the set you know things that you have to do, and the acting has to be amazing because that makes those movies. With a zombie film and making a student zombie film in my head, which I was doing, I can just get people that I think are cool and good enough, and, and we can center the action and the gore and let everything else you know sort of do its thing. And that was my thinking. Uh, and so that's really how it came about. And that's really one of the big reasons why we picked going that genre. Right, right. And so and you edited the film yourself? I did. So we, we, we shot the film in those nine days. Interestingly enough, the first day of filming, we were downtown Orlando. Um, and we had to have zombies running through downtown. And I put an ad up uh, for zombies needed. This is before where there was like big social media. So this was 2005. So there wasn't, you know, a big thing. So I put an ad out and we had 
I think it was like 600 people show up to be zombies. And I only have one makeup guy. <laughs> and he's just looking at me. He's like, Steven, what am I, what am I supposed to do here, dude? Like I can't make, I was like, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna make up the first three rows. You make them up as good as you can, because after that, the camera is going to be going so nuts. Everyone after that, just step up, splash them with blood, you know, rip a shirt here, do this here. So that's that's basically how we shot it. I took that first day's footage. I went home and I cut a, a little teaser out of it and I had no idea what to do with it. But I sent it to Ain't It Cool News and Ain't It Cool News put it up on their site. And that night we got a call from New Line Cinema and I don't know how they got my number. I don't I, I have no idea. Uh, but New Line Cinema called me and I was shooting at the time. So they left a voicemail and just said something like, hey, this is New Line. We saw your teaser. We really love it. When you're done and you have a cut, we'd love to be the first ones to see it. And they left me their contact information. So I could tell you that's one of the reasons why the film ultimately got finished is because I played that over a bullhorn to the entire crew on the second day of shooting and just said, this is from the first day of shooting, the first teaser I put up, and we already have a call from a major studio. So let's make this thing kick ass, you know? And so that's really what got everyone excited uh, to finish the movie. And we did. Uh, and so I took it and uh, I drove to LA. Uh, I had barely had anything left at that point money wise. So I was sleeping in my car uh, in LA, editing the movie on my laptop. Uh, I was sort of sleeping right outside of my friend's uh, apartment. So it was like, if I need to get in there and shower, I could, but his apartment was like a box. There's no way I was fitting in there. Uh, so I was sleeping in my car, editing it on my laptop. Uh, and so I was pulling favors from Craigslist, crazy enough, you know, random Craigslist favors about uh, doing sound design, doing score. Uh, you know, we had uh, Jamie, Jamie who did score. I mean, he was doing Gears of War at the time. Uh, and so, you know, he luckily enough had space and he was like i got weekends i can score the movie for you and i was like wow and he ended up taking the movie and scoring it and then completely sound designing it for us and doing ldadr I and mean, he was a huge asset to helping us finish the movie and that process took about a year oh a year and a half for me to finish because i was constantly trying not just edit but trying to find work to to eat and and stuff so it was taking a long process to get done um yeah so i edited the whole film got it done and then was able to, you know, I was able to show it to New Line, who ultimately was like, yeah, this isn't for us, which is a huge blow. Um, but then I started trying to figure out who else to show it to. And I got it in the hands of Brad Miska at Bloody Disgusting. And Brad was a huge asset in sort of chiming around saying, hey, this is a great movie. You should watch it. Uh, and it got into Scream Fest. And then it played for Scream Fest. And, you know, then it was a bidding war. It was like Lionsgate and Dimension and Fox Atomic and at the time. And so, it, you know, it was crazy how it worked. But it was from 2005 to 2007 when it screened at Scream Fest. So it was a two-years deal um, before it finally got bought by Dimension um, and, you know, and released. So uh, crazy first feature story. Wow. Wow. That's extraordinary. <laughs> and then the next thing you went on to do, um, if I got my time light right, is Aggression Scale, Yes, which is an, an action film. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's sort of like a Home Alone rated R. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? Well, I was, I was actually making a small movie called Under the Bed at the time with oh, right. Brad Miska. And so under the bed and the producers of the aggression scale, Travis Stevens came to set and he was like, you know, look, dude, I really want to figure out how to make something with you. And I said, yeah, sure. And he sent me the script. I loved it. Um, and I, I literally was, I finished shooting under the bed and I 
hopped off that set and walked onto the aggression scale and went and made that. So I literally made those movies back to back. So the timeline isn't wrong. It's just, they were made back to back. Right. Um, right. And, uh, and yeah, it, it was something that I had been sort of pushing for of, look, I, I love horror, but I think my aesthetic speaks to action. And I think that's sort of what all of my horror films or even my films up to that were, where they were really horror. They were action films disguised in the horror genre is, is what I like to say, because, you know, I was trying to push the action elements on top of having all the scare or the gore or, or whatever that was that made it into the horror genre. So uh, the aggression scale gave me a chance to sort of, yes, keep some of the horror elements, but keeping them uh, more subdued and really more pushing the action elements and letting those stand out a little bit. So uh, that was a lot of fun to be able to do. Right, right. And you assembled a really good cast. You've got Dana Ashbrook and yes. Ray Wise. What was the casting process like? You know, that was all me and Travis. I mean, Travis Stevens is a great producer. Um, I loved working with him. And he, he's just one of those guys that really understands indie cinema and understands that you need certain uh caliber of actors to really make those indie films work and when we're looking at dana and you know of course ray's a no-brainer he's just amazing uh, and the fact that he even said yes was awesome uh, but i think it's because we also had dana on board too and, and dana and ray are you know obviously buddies and have worked together and so uh once dana said yes it was kind of like a, a wave of everyone saying they wanted to do it because dana is just such a cool guy and everybody respects him so uh you know it was a lot of fun and really you know, it wasn't about making them read or anything like that. We really just kind of went out to them saying, Hey, this is yours. Um, we think you'd be great for it. You know, there's no, there's no reading when it comes to that. So, you know, that, that process was really simple. I just kind of left it up to Travis to find guys that he felt were great and he would bring those names to me. And I would say yes. And, and that's how it worked. Right. Right. What was the toughest part about filming? I think the toughest part of, I mean, we made the movie in 12 days. So I, I think that was the most insane part of it was trying to, we were all over the place location wise. <clears throat> and so trying to, you know, get a tense taught action film with a kid with kids, right. You know, these, these, you know, Fabi was older, she was older than 18, but, but, you know, we was just like trying to get all of this and, and teachers and, you know, it's just four, 12 days is, is unreal for a movie that costs, I think it was like a hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, it was just a really difficult to try to maintain that pace. Wow. Wow. And, I kind of guess this is one of the reasons why producers like you, if you can turn out to feature films in. Yeah, it, it's a curse. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. You know, it's like, yes, I want to work. I, I love working, but it also, it did. It was really one of those things where producers are like, wait a minute, we don't have to spend the 25 days to get a movie that looks like this, you know, or, or is, is got quality, a certain quality to it. So yeah, it, it was a blessing. It's a curse. It, it is. It, it sort of got me in a situation a couple of times where people were like, well, we think you could make it in this amount of days and you have to really fight. No, I'm telling you, I made this in that amount of time because there's not a bigger machine happening. You know what I mean? Like once the movie gets bigger and there's a bigger machine, it's really tough to get people to move that quickly uh, and, and for, you know, an entire circus to move. Like yeah. when you're dealing with an indie film, it's like, three guys in a van, you know, <laughs> it's not gigantic trucks everywhere. So, you know, it's, it really is something that uh, I did find to my strength. Uh, and I think it, uh, it came, it came kind of natural to me to shoot quickly. I, and I think a lot of people say, well, what would you do if you had 35, 40 days to make a movie, which I've never had, you know, I, I don't know if my pace would change. There would just be so much more footage. Um, and that's just because I like to shoot fast. I don't like to sit. 
Um, I'm not a guy that's sitting by a tent somewhere with video village. That's not me. I'm, I'm on the camera next to the camera operator next to whoever's right there, you know, pulling focus, you know, that's just me. I'm there in the moment. Uh, they, in fact, like on my m- most recent films, they, they actually made a device for me that is Bluetooth. That is, is a camera, like is basically a screen that I can wear, uh, that I could walk around with, um, because I like to be so close to everyone that I just needed to be able to look at it and, and be right there. So, um, but yeah, it, it is definitely played to my advantage a lot of the times, but it's also just in my DNA. I'm just, I'm just very, <laughs> ah, I like that. <laughs> Press the button, film it. Press the button, move. film it. Move. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, 100% yeah. That's brilliant. And then the kind of the next stage, and George Romero always said that the best directors have been editors. In fact, uh, he was an editor before he started he directing. Do you prefer to edit your own films? I do. I'm a, I, I find that I have a very distinct way that I like them to be put together. And I think that's because of how I shoot them. I, I shoot them so... Uh, distinctly that when the editor comes in, there's not a lot of room for the editor to be creative because it's shot so specifically. Um, So a lot of editors have an issue with not being able to creatively create something. They're just sort of play by playbook, you know, Oh, well, Steven wants this piece piece to fit here. That's how it's shot. There's no other way that piece can fit. Um, And so I do prefer to edit. Um, Of course, like, you know, you have, uh, most producers and studios like to have an editor. Um, and I think it's also cool that I get an editor who assembles the first piece of it for me that gives me sort of a linear version of what I shot that I can see from A to B. And then I like to come in and, and really fine tune it. Right, right. So after that, you went on to do Silent Night. How did that come about? That one was a long process because I had um, originally been up for it very early on uh, when the movie was over at Dimension. Um, And so they had me uh, reading and scripts for it. Uh, Jared Rivid at one point is a writer who had wrote an early draft for me. Um, and so it went through various stages and then it kind of just disappeared for a few years. And that's when I went to sort of, cause that was happening right after I made automaton, my first film. And then I sort of went into this bleak two or three year period where nothing was getting made. Cause I was developing lots of things like silent. I had developed motel hell. I, I was developing all these things and, uh, they kept falling through. So that's when I jumped back into making indie cinema, like under the bed and aggression scale. And while right. I was making those, you know, that's what sort of happens. Once you start putting yourself back out there and working, you know, the universe has a way of sort of saying coming back around. Uh, and I got a call uh, from Darren Bowsman. And Darren was saying, hey, look, uh, I was going to go make uh, this remake of Silent Night. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. Uh, but I told the producers, you're great. Uh, and so then I, yeah, I talked to the producers who was Richard Saperstein at the time, uh, and Richard knew me from his days at dimension. Uh, and so he basically said, you know, we'd love to have you. And, and so that process really began with Darren and, and Darren's been a big fan of mine and we've been buddies for a long time. So, um, he was someone that, that jumped in pretty early on and said, Hey, look, Steven is the guy, if I can't do it, Steven's the guy that you should do. So, um, yeah, funny enough how it comes back around. And then they, they were like, we should go make this movie. Right. And were you a fan of the original 1984 film? I love the original film. I mean, I think it's one of those films that has a lot more going on that people get it credit for. It's just a really intense look at a guy struggling uh, with, with his family and, and being abandoned. And, you know, I just think it's, it's just one of those films that has a lot 
happening. Uh, and so for me, when I got the the remake sort of reboot or whatever we were calling it, you know, I was really adamant very early on that I did not want to make or try to remake that movie. I, I felt like that movie was was really well done. Um, and I didn't want to come in and say, look, I think I can make it better because I wasn't trying to make the movie better. I, I wanted to do something that just had its version of a Silent Night, Deadly Night. What would happen on Christmas with a killer Santa? I had no interest in trying to retool the original film or or even mimic the original film. That, to me, that's not what really the best remakes do. Uh, I, I feel like some of the best remakes that I love always just put their own sort of style, their own sort of vision on on uh, the piece, the sort of core of the movie. And the core to me was a, you know, a killer Santa. And so I wanted to do something with killer Santa. That's what I felt like was with the audience would connect to and the audience would have fun with. Um, and that's where, that's where we went with it. And it was, so it was a lot of fun to sort of develop it early on because we went through a lot of stages. In fact, uh, James Wan came in very early on with me. And, and at one point James was thinking about getting involved and me and James had developed a supernatural version of the Santa. Uh, it was more in the Krampus world. Um, and then, and then James went on to do Insidious and, and blew up. And so it was like, he was like, well, I'm kind of busy. So, uh, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, gotcha. Um, and so then we kind of kept going with sort of veering into more of the grounded reality version of it. But yeah, so it was a lot of fun to dig in and sort of figure out where we were going to go with the movie. Right, right. Okay. So I have a quote for you. I thought Silent Night was a fun movie. Movies are supposed to entertain. People take these things far too seriously. I really think the film's director, Stephen C. Miller, has great potential. He knows how to work with actors. He knows how to direct. I'd work with him again at any time. And that's Malcolm McDowell. Love Malcolm. He's awesome. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of an intimidating guy. I, I know Malcolm. 100%. Yeah. 100%. He shows up on set. He's Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> and let's be real. He's really the first, for me, he was, he was the first actor that I grew up um, idolizing. Uh, you know, for me, he was, he was a guy that I really um, looked at as someone that could act, that he was an actor first. He, that's what he was. He does his craft really well. Uh, he knows it inside and out. He's worked with some of the biggest directors of all time. You know, so for me, it, it, he was the first actor that I was really uh, intimidated to sit down with uh, and talk to because I, I didn't want to, you know, blow it because uh, I had to get his approval first. So, uh, you know, he, he definitely is intimidating. But then all of a sudden you realize he's amazing and he is actually really sweet. Um, and he he's a filmmaker uh, in his own right, too. He just he understands that. And so I, I love that about him. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a very very cool guy and has very wonderful cool. sto wonderful stories as well. Yeah. Um, so, the you know over the years the film itself has kind of got kind of mixed reviews, um, but it's still sure. you know, it's very popular. Do you take the reviews to heart? No, I I think that's sort of like for me I I learned very early on that my movies are very polar. And so I, I, I get that. And I, to be honest, I kind of like it. Like I enjoy that, you know, my movies aren't something for everybody, uh, that my films are, they sort of have their own life to them where it's like people love them and then they hate them. And then it's funny people that hated them five years later, you know, they love it. Uh, <clears throat> so I, 
I don't pay attention to reviews. I feel like if I did that, I'd be reading forever and I'd be down a rabbit hole of hating myself. So I, I, you know, I, I do look at specific ones that I feel like when they're not negative reviews as much as they are, they're talking about certain things that they feel could have been better. I, I do like reading that stuff because I like learn. I, I do like to learn and understand what the audience is taking away from things. Um, you know, if they're not being mean, if it's just like, hey, I didn't follow this or I didn't really get this or, you know, I wish we could have done that. Then I sort of take that and go, okay, you know what? I'm going to think about that the next time I'm, I'm filming. You know, what did that audience member not realize or not get? I'm going to use that uh, for the next movie and make sure that I hone in on that and, and really use that. So I, I do think it is important in some cases to learn from mistakes. And, and I don't, don't think all my films are perfect. And I think I looked at my very early ones as sort of early film school, which is just learning uh, and shooting and trying to do everything I possibly can to to kind of hone whatever that style I was trying to figure out. Um, and that and that really is even Silent Night. There's a lot of things in Silent Night I was just experimenting with just because I, I knew I could and there wasn't a big studio on my back. It was just, you know, some really fun producers and a lot of people wanting to make a cool movie like Malcolm and, and just letting him run with it. Um, and, and that's sort of what we talked about very early on with Malcolm and Jamie. And I said that to Malcolm. I was like, Malcolm, I, I don't want you to take this movie like this is the most serious thing on the planet. Like we need to understand this is an 80s slasher film. That's what I'm going for. That's the, the tone here. I'm going to make it. I'm going to have it's going to feel serious in like the musical tones and things like that. But I want the acting to feel a little bigger. I want it to feel a little more like you're trying to make this in the B movie range. And so we we took that to heart very early on and, and he really had fun with it. And I told him, look, man, you're going to I'm going to try to give you a Western cue, you know, <laughs> try to make it feel like, you know, you're, you're kind of like a gunslinger you know, and that, that's sort of like what we talked about very early on. And, and that's where we went. And so, you know, I think for me that that is all experimenting. That's all me right. just trying to find things. And those reviews point that out. That's great. They see it. And for the reviews that don't get it, that's okay. You know, they, because yeah. you're going to, they'll get it maybe eventually. And, and I'll hit them at this funny guys that reviewed movies early on that they don't like or liking some of my newer stuff. So, you know, to me, I'm fine with them finding things and bits and pieces they like about me. And if they don't, that's cool too. Right, right. Oh, you mentioned Jamie, Jamie King, um, mm-hmm. who you've worked uh, more recently on, um, forgive me, Escape which plan. film? Escape Plan was the last thing we did together. Right. Oh, yes, yes, with Sylvester Stallone. With Stallone, yes. Now, tell me a little bit about that, although we will need to go back and talk about Bruce Willis <laughs> films as well, but tell me a little yeah. bit about it, which I really enjoyed. Um, I was yeah, much- it's... it's- Thank you. Yeah. Escape plan is, man, that is a, that movie, you know, working. So I, I had done a few movies with uh, Emmett Furla uh, and Lionsgate. And so I sort of knew what their machine was uh, you coming into it. You, you know, uh, you know what you're getting yourself into, which is probably an under 20 day shoot more in the 18, 16 to 18 day range. And you're going to have Bruce or fly or Nick for one to maybe five days if you're lucky. Um, and so I had Sly for three days. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have to shoot everything with Sly in those three days. Um, and you have to figure out how to shoot it. And then you have to understand how you shot it and go back the rest of the movie and shoot where he was or around him or on his stunt doubles back or, you know, so you have to really, uh, understand, uh, the <laughs> filmmaking, I guess, and, and editing when you're, when you're doing these movies, because it's just, it can be a real, you know, a real mind fuck. So it, it's kind of crazy. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's how you got to work with all, all these guys. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, and I'm thinking 
um, particularly of, uh, and I just want to make sure, I, so we're talking about escape plan, which in a way to me felt like a Kung Fu movie. The mm -hmm. violence in it is very stylized. Whereas if you compare that with Line of Duty, to me, the act, the violence there just feels clumsy and brutal, and these guys really don't know what they're doing. Right. Were you, was that a very conscious de decision when you looked at those two projects? Yeah, 100%. When I was looking at Escape Plan, you know, I was looking at movies like Universal Soldier, or I was going back even further, and I was just really looking at old kung fu films that I love and, and looking at how do I achieve that in this really technical world. Um, <clears throat> and how do I achieve it in an amount of time? Uh, and to me, it, it, it made more sense to try to be as stylized as possible with escape plan uh, because I didn't have a lot of resources. Uh, and so I wanted to try to make the action feel uh, more stylized than what, you know, the rest of the movie I had around me. Uh, and so to try to give it some kind of scope and some kind of feel. Um, but I also just, you know, I, I really love prison films. Um, and I was just trying to give it an aesthetic that was different than, than some of the prison films I'd seen. Uh, and then when it came to line of duty, I really looked, took it as, well, you know, we've seen the John wicks, uh, we've seen those films where everything is very precise. Uh, the fighting is very choreographed. Uh, and to me, this was about a police officer and I don't know very many police officers that have been through much training other than just their law enforcement training. Uh, and they haven't done, they're not, you know, equipped in Taekwondo or, or Kung Fu or, or whatever that is. Like they're not equipped in any of these martial arts. And so, and even with, you know, our bad guy and Ben McKenzie in, in, you know, he is just an ex uh, Marine. Like for me, I felt like he's also got a very specific set of skills that he knows. So I, I really didn't want to bring in like a, a crazy, aspect of the film that didn't make sense to me. It was very grounded. What would happen if these two guys just slammed into each other and started wrestling around that, that is what I wanted to see. And that was even in the, in the fight choreography with the fight choreographers and the stunt choreographers, you know, very early on, they wanted to go with the, the John Woo, we're going to have him do this and that. And me and Aaron quickly shut that down. And we said, no, 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 let Aaron and this guy just go at it. I, I don't want to choreograph it. Uh, I want it to feel like it's happening in real time. Um, and so there were some things they had to choreograph, of course, like how he's going to grapple or move. But a lot of it was based on grappling. A lot of it was just handheld grappling and, and biting and tussling and pulling and biting. Uh, and if that was going to happen, I felt like that is exactly what would happen in real life. And so for me, it was just about capturing that realness. Uh, and that's what we did even with the camera setups was, you know, we would just kind of place the cameras in space and let them go. And I would tell my camera operators, we're just going to capture what's happening. And that's how we did it. Did you have more than one camera operator in that case? We had two. So most of my films run two cameras at all times. Um, that's how we're able to get a lot of the things so quickly. But I'm not a fan of more than that. I really don't like extraneous amounts of cameras because then I feel like I've got to maneuver the scenes around that camera that's up mm. in the sky, you know, and I don't want to be able to do that. I want to be able to have the two cameras that I have capture mainly everything I need. And then if I have to go to another camera, we just, we cut and we go to another camera and it's just one camera with a crane or whatever that is. Um, but for the most part, I'm very handheld. I like to be in the action. I like to be in the mix. Uh, and I like the cameras to feel like they're in that. Right. Right. So do you, how do you start preparing for a, fight sequence do you have your own form of notation do you just make little thumbnail sketches yeah 
I sort of just sit by myself <laughs> for a few hours in whatever hotel room I'm in. Uh, and I do, I go through, it's a, it's sort of a, a, a drawing phase of just sort of what, what would I like to see notes wise? Um, what have I not seen? Um, how do I want them to react? Uh, if I know basically where they're going to be set, uh, as far as, you know, where they are in a set, do I want them to smash into this or roll into that? And I just sort of jot down all of the things I'd like to see. Uh, and then I hand that to my stunt coordinator and say, look, I know we need to get from A to B. And then getting from A to B, I'd like them to do A, B, and C. Um, and so then he takes those kind of notes and goes, okay, and then kind of devises something with that and comes back to me and shows me. And, uh, and then we, we fine-tune it from there. But, yeah, it all really starts with me just sort of sitting and, and kind of noodling uh, on things that I'd love to see or things that I think would be fun. Who are your um, greatest influences, do you think, in terms of direction? Uh, I think some of my uh, Sam Raimi that we mentioned, but I mean, James Cameron was a big deal for me. Uh, Terminator two was the first R rated action film that I saw in a theater. Uh, and so it had a huge impact on me of just like how the camera moved with the sci-fi elements, uh, and what was able to be done in that movie to seem mind blowing to me. Um, you know, but definitely, you know, going back to even that beyond that, it was Peter Jackson with a lot of his earlier horror stuff had a big, huge influence on me. I just love the way Peter Jackson throws the camera around. Like it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's just flying around all over the place. Uh, and to me, that was something that I really gravitated to in his early stuff, um, that really hit home to me. Um, you know, and, and of course I was, I was into, I was into guys like Stanley Kubrick and stuff like that, but I, I always felt like they were so artur for me that I was never going to get there. <laughs> like, like I, I understood that cinema. I get it. Um, but I knew me as a filmmaker was, was more, um, you know, I guess raw or more, uh, interested in, in creating films that I felt like, uh, were more popcorn. Uh, and I love art films. I do. I really dig all those kind of stuff, but you know, I think when you look at yourself and what you make and what you do really well, um, for me, it was like, you know, I really, I really do well in the action or horror space that has an audience sort of just sitting back and enjoying it instead of trying to really figure out, you know, uh, mentally what is going on. Uh, <laughs> they just are allowed to enjoy. And I think that's sort of, you know, where I found my, my greatest strength is. And so when I look at some of the filmmakers that I, that I love growing up, that's sort of what their movies did for me early on was I wasn't looking for plot or necessarily uh, trying to figure the movie out. It was just throwing me into a world that they created for me. Uh, and I was just going with those characters, whether it was, you know, Bruce Campbell or, or whoever it was, I was just on a ride with those guys. And that to me is what I think really sculpted my vision for filmmaking. Right. Right. I was just looking at my list of the films, um, cause I'm flipping around all over my questions at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, first kill, which you kind of mentioned with Bruce Willis. Yep. I watched that and I thought, Oh, okay. I'm getting steam. He's, action direction i thought this film is an action film and if i was reading i was talking about reviews earlier on and somebody sure. was saying i think they they gave it 20 minutes and they were really objecting to the fact the father was taking the son out to kill right. bambi effectively yep. um and that was like that's not the way to, this to me is very much not about violence not about it's like kind of not about Bruce Willis. Right. You have this wonderful relationship between the boy, the thief, and the father. 
Mm-hmm. Was that something you're aiming for? Is that just something I happened to No, it, it really was a movie that, like, I had already done two movies with Bruce. <clears throat> First Kill was the last one I would do with Bruce so far. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to do, even when they were picking the scripts and they were trying to find things that we were going to do with Bruce, you know, I, I really went to them and said, guys, look, I'd really like to do something that's a little more personal, um, <clears throat> that has a little more heart to it. <clears throat> and so, you know, and, and not totally trying to revolve around what Bruce is doing, because, you know, I understood by that point that, like you were saying, even reviewers, when they see Bruce in these movies, immediately attack the movie for Bruce. They, they don't watch the movie. Uh, for some reason, it's a it's a Bruce isn't he's phoning it in. And I'll tell you, Bruce doesn't phone it in. Bruce just has a hard time. Uh, doing a whole movie he's supposed to do in one day. <laughs> and so, you know, anybody would, the guy's just trying to get through all of this stuff in one day. Uh, and so, you know, you know, of course that's on him for not wanting to do more days, but still that, it's not that he's phoning in. It's just that he's trying to get through it. So they just um, automatically take these movies at face value and they see Bruce and then, and that's sort of game over for them. And so I don't know how much of the movie they really watch, but first kill was a personal movie for me. Um, because it was, uh, for me, it's sort of like a connection of that I had with my dad when I was not the hunting aspect, but just a connection I had with my dad when I was little, my dad was very involved with me. Um, and very much like at, at one point he was too busy and then he all of a sudden wanted to be involved. And when he wanted to be involved, it felt real and authentic. And, and I feel like that's sort of where first kill was for me. It was a very busy dad who ultimately wanted to reconnect with his son. Uh, and then his son ends up connecting with his captor, uh, you know, and I think that was sort of me in movies. I sort of connected with, with movies, which had sort of had taken me for a long time because my dad and, and my family were so busy. Uh, and so movies was sort of my thing. And so I, I sort of channeled a lot of that into first kill. Um, and I, and it's sort of very personal way. And even the way I shoot the movie is it's not very handheld as much as my other stuff. It's, it's more steady. It's, it's more, uh, you know, dis, uh, distinct and decisive uh, camera movements. Um, and, you know, I try to stay on shots a lot longer with the actors and, and really let them do their thing in the scenes. So <clears throat> it, it was a very personal departure uh, for me. Uh, and so, you know, it, you know, it's, it is a little like, uh, people just didn't get it. And I don't know how much they watched and, and didn't understand what it was, but yes, I mean, to your point, there was a lot of that going on. Right. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I I just think, kind of think go back and watch the film. You know, get yeah, past. yeah. I think if people if you get past Bruce, which is hard to do, I understand. But if you get past <laughs> Bruce doing what Bruce is doing, and a lot of times, you know, th- to be honest, in First Kill, Bruce is doing the best acting he's done in any of my movies is in First Kill. Like, and and so uh, it's just really hard. And I love Bruce. It's just very difficult to try to pull everything you need to pull out of the guy when you can only do one or two takes. And you got to move on. Like, that's all you have. There's no time for me to sit and talk to Bruce and be like, Bruce, this is where we're at, dude. We need to go from here to here tomorrow. No, there's none of that. It's Bruce. I just need you to get the line out, dude. I, I've got to keep moving uh, because Bruce also likes to tinker. He, like, <clears throat> he likes to just throw things out and then and, and be spontaneous. And you're like, no, no, Bruce, we can't be spontaneous, bro. I need you to stick to that. And we got to keep, we got to keep going. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I was going to say I really would love to see have the chance to work with him properly because you know watching other films that he's done, it's not like he can't act, and he no, can he can act. Deli- yeah, he can, and we've talked about it several times about like when do we get to do something where we have time to do it? 
you know, but I throw that on him. I'm like, Bruce, dude, you, all you have to do is say, I'm Bruce Willis. Give me five, <laughs> give me 10 days to make this move. You know, like he, he can do that. So, you know, I throw that on him a lot. So right. uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see when he wants to do that. I'm, I'm open to do that. Um, but, you know, I, to be honest, I always had pleasant experiences with Bruce. I know there's been lots of people that say they don't have pleasant experiences with Bruce, but me and Bruce clicked. Uh, we had a lot of fun together. Uh, you know, maybe the first day was the first time was very difficult because he was feeling me out and trying to learn what I'm doing. And I think he even felt like this is happening really fast. How is this kid even doing this? Um, so, you know, we might've had a little bit of a, a, a headbutt on the first few hours of set, but once he understood, and I think once we had a really good talk, he, I mean, he kind of settled into it with me. Um, and then from then on the next couple of films we had, he was a peach, you know, he was really good and really nice and, uh, you know, enjoyed just, I enjoyed having him there. Good, good, good. Right. Well, we're almost at the end of the hour. Um, mm. and before we move on to the luggage in the crypt, which that feels ter terribly, terribly relevant considering your father's um, yes. thing. Have you got anything else lined up, anything coming up in 2021 or? Yeah, you know, I have a few things. One of the things I'm really excited about uh, is called Year Two. Um, and it's it's a werewolf film, which I'm excited about because I haven't done werewolves before. And I love werewolf films, uh, you know. And so I, and I honestly, I haven't seen, you know, I don't know if I've seen one that I've really loved in a while, uh, I like late phases a lot, um, but like, you know, but I haven't seen one that I've really enjoyed in a long time. So I'm excited to dive into that world and, and creature makeup and, and building it from scratch and, uh, and having these, these things running around in real life. And so I think that's sort of like the goal here is we sort of said, we're going to do this 90% practical. And so that's been the challenge so far. This whole year has been really, uh, designed to figuring out how we make that practical movie, um, and, and, you know, not that it's been great that this has happened in 2020, but for me to be home and designing all of this with this, with everyone has actually given me a lot of time to make this movie where I think, or start to prep this movie in a way where I think it could be really fun. Right. Right. Cool. All right. Well, I look forward, I'm a big fan of werewolf movies. Me so, too. um, yeah, I look forward to that. Okay. So just like to finish with luggage in the crypt question. So the idea being, what would you take? into the crypt with you just to keep yourself occupied. What film oh, would you, <laughs> what film would you take with you? You know what? I would probably take, I would take the Goonies. Um, and I think I would take the Goonies because it's a film that I can watch over and over again. And it makes me feel young. Uh, and I think if I'm in the crypt, I want to feel young. Right. Uh, and I want to feel like I have a, a little <laughs> bit of energy to me. Uh, and I think it's sort of a movie that, that really, uh, got me through childhood. Uh, I felt like I was a part of their gang. Um, and I was always on adventures with my brothers like that. Uh, we would literally try to emulate those adventures in our backyards and our neighborhoods. Um, and so for me, it's a movie that resonates very hard. Uh, and so it's something I would take with me, uh, you know, to be able to sort of, you know, give me that same feeling over and over again. Right. What about a book? Oh man, that's a good question. What book would I take? Um, you know, I probably take Rodriguez's book on indie filmmaking um, because that book to me was a big uh, page turner. Uh, for me, it was something that allowed me to understand how how Robert did a lot of his early films. Uh, you know, and uh, it it helped me um, be who I am as a filmmaker. Uh, and I, to be honest, I can read that over and over again as far as finding new things here and there and, and how to make indie films and, and how to do guerrilla cinema 
Uh, and I even take that into my studio films. So that is definitely something I would take with me. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I remember the opening of the book and meeting with Lloyd Kaufman and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kaufman explaining to him why he couldn't sell the movie. It's, <laughs> you know, it's not going to make any money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> what about an album? Oh, let's see. For me, an album I would probably take, you know, look, I'm an, I'm an indie, indie kind of music guy. Uh, there's a band called the Get Up Kids, uh, which some people might know, some people might not know. Uh, but it was influential for me in my teen years um, uh, besides Nirvana, which is maybe like an obvious choice. So I'm going to go with someone that like people might not know, which is the get up kids. And it's called four minute mile. Uh, and it's a very, very intimate sort of album for the band. And I, it is something that I really love. Right. Right. And what about um, uh, a favorite food or beverage? Oh man, I'm going to have to go with a hamburger. Uh, I'm a, I'm a burger guy. I know it's like, I can't help it. It's just, my wife says it's going to kill me. I know, but, uh, we've, we tried to transition into the beyond burgers, uh, right. you know, and, and that kind of a thing. But, uh, for me, and it's funny, my, my grandmother, uh, her mom passed away when she was 101 and, uh, her mom had a hamburger and a Coke every day. Uh, I don't know for her, almost her whole life. And she lived to be 101. So I'm just sort of following that strategy of, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have a hamburger, maybe not every day. My wife wouldn't let me, but, uh, you know, it's definitely a food that I enjoy. Right. Okay. So crucial questions then with pickles, without pickles. I'm a, I'm a pickle guy. I'm a pickle guy. And, and it's kind of the basic, it's like pickles, mayonnaise and mustard. I mean, ketchup and mustard and pickles. That's, I love that's the, if I can do the grilled onions, great. But, but really it's like the all American, I guess, classic burger. Right. So with the, with the, you know, the sort of soft white bap, Yep, that's it. Cool. I'm simple. <laughs> Over here, they insist on on serving them with brioche, and I just think no. it's just wrong, <laughs> wrong yeah, on every just level. Give it, just give it to me normal. That's yeah, all I want. Just wrong on every level, as far as I'm concerned. Oh man, that's awesome. What about a piece of uh, visual art, a poster, a painting? Oh, I think the let's think. Let me think of a, a piece of art that I that I love. Um, you know, one of the pieces that I love, I think I have it in here, it's not hanging up right now, but is I have a fight club, I love the fight club poster. Uh, and I and I think that fight club poster is impactful for me because it just sort of gives me the idea that I can take on the world. And that's sort of what fight club meant to me was that, uh, you know, these these ragtag group of guys just sort of taking on the establishment. So I think I would, I would take something like that into the grave because I got to fight whatever's going on down there. Yep. Yep. That makes, <laughs> and this is the one where he's got the... Um, yeah, yes. the soap. <laughs> yes, the soap is like it's classic. It's absolutely brilliant. What about um, a luxury? A luxury. Mm. What would be considered a luxury? What, what would that be? And I'm well, thinking, trying to think in terms of something, a comfort that you yeah. wouldn't do without. I mean, we've covered. I, somebody's pointed out on a previous one. Everything I ask is a luxury in some sense. Um, yeah. But you know, something. I, oh man. Something that I would take with me that's a luxury. Oh, that is a good one. Um, you know, I probably take my my daughter um, consistently carries around. Still, she's ten, but she keeps it in her room, which is a, a teddy bear that I got her very early when she was first born. Um, so I think I would take that. I, I would I would try to squeeze that out of her hands because <laughs> to me that's comforting. There's a lot of times that I go on the road and I have to shoot without them. Uh, and she consistently puts that in my suitcase. Um, and so when I get there, that's there. 
Um, so I think that, you know, she's thinking of me that way. So I think that's something that I would definitely take with me. That, that seems like the most, most perfect of answers. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, thank you so very much for joining me today. This has been fun. Oh, I've had a blast. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. Thanks again to Stephen C. Miller. What a lovely and talented man he is. And next week on Christmas Eve, I'm joined by a star of Dog Day Afternoon, Fright Night, and The Nightmare Before Christmas, Chris Sarandon. Join me then, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Thank you.